Support for this episode of Talking Machines comes from the Open Data Science Conference. ODSC East returns to Boston May 20th through the 22nd, covering topics from data science to artificial intelligence. Use code TM at checkout for reduced price tickets. ODSC.com slash Boston for more information and registration. are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Katherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Today's episode is a little different than the episodes we usually bring you. Ryan and I just returned from a small conference that was organized in part by Neil Lawrence of the University of Sheffield. And while we were there, Neil and Ryan and I had a chance to sit down and talk about some of the more philosophical issues in and around artificial intelligence and machine learning. We felt that this conversation really touched on some of the topics that we don't get a chance to look at a lot here on Talking Machines. So in order to share more of it with you, today we are giving over our whole show to our conversation with Ryan Adams and Neil Lawrence of the University of Sheffield. We began by talking about the importance of narrative and how important it is in human interactions. Really, um, you're making me think about all this narrative stuff and this thing about stories is, um, uh, it's another, uh, you know, slightly unrelated to what we were just talking about, but this whole thing about AI that everyone's panicking about, like what will humans do in our AI futures when computers take over? Well, you know, the, the AI computer will never have these background stories. The AI will never, you know, it, it auto-generates a text, and but it will never have alongside it that it was a single computer mom, you know, working in a cafe. <laughs> Would have been, it's, we were talking about this with uh, single-origin coffees at my local espresso shop. So I had this <laughs> Colombian student visiting, and they're not doing very well on single-origin coffees because they co-operated, like, in the 50s or something. Can you, can you explain what a single-origin coffee Single-origin coffee is, like, from a single hacienda like in guatemala so but of course if you're going to sell your single origin coffee to make your flat white you know in the in the bay area then it's not just that it's it has to be from guatemala and then it has to be a guy called pedro who has a donkey who climbs the mountain every day you know to get the coffee because there's an entire story behind the coffee i mean half the people you're filling it with a load of milk you can't taste most of the coffee anyway you know at the end of the day but but this story of pedro sweating up the mountain is somehow part of people's experience like and that's what uh, you know it's, it makes it's them feel important. connected it makes people feel connected that the and that's so important to us as humans to mm-hmm. have a sort of connection to have that feeling uh, to the extent that people market it marketing's about giving you that connection when it doesn't exist well i think that's going to become harder and harder as we start to automate this stuff and actually well there's two ways things could go we could either we could value those human stories more and value each other as individuals and for our stories um and i hope that's the way it's going to go or we could just go into this sort of like well we're just consuming you know stuff that's output by computer like uh without caring where it's coming from so that's just a dystopian side and utopian side i think it will fall somewhere in between i don't know i'm i'm pretty optimistic about the utopian version of that because i feel like this is already happening and has happened you know in various uh segments of society in various markets where there really isn't any uh serious sort of shortage of goods right like where yeah. uh people really don't want for anything people nevertheless value bespoke goods in various ways like coffee i think is a great example of this right where at this cafe you probably can't really tell the difference between the different coffee beans and you probably couldn't tell the difference between uh you know a hipster barista making it by hand versus like a machine making it 
you know, well, these people guys might, are pretty good. They do people good might argue. Right? People might argue, but this is an opportunity to automate <laughs> things, right? That's not. It's not magical. It's yeah. pre- very procedural, and yet people still pay a premium for the barista to make it. And this is true for Rolls Royces, and it's true for all kinds of every kind of art. Essentially, you can buy a vase that has been made very, very well, but you will pay for an imperfect one. Yeah, uh, pay yeah, a huge yeah. premium for an imperfect one. I think that kind of thing is only going to become more and more common. Well, the story, I mean, this is all the value associated with art, which is actually associated with the fact that the artist is dead and can never recreate this thing anymore, that art goes up in value uh, once the artist has died. I mean, and it's interesting, we're sort of seeing some really amazing pictures, I think, coming out of deep learning at the moment. Does it devalue the original artists who created those things? Well, I don't think it does because actually people are... I mean, it's great that I could come up with a cool picture on my wall that's based on something personal, um, but it's never going to take away the market for those stories. Well, and I think it's worth pointing out too that in the deep learning sort of art space, I mean, so the deep dream thing is one thing where, you know, trying to turn interesting sort of shapes into other into other shapes that has previously memorized... Uh, that's kind of one thing, but then there's this replication of artistic yeah, yeah. style. So, yeah, right? I was conflating two. Um, but yes, but the, uh, these things, yeah. and, and this, and the replication of artistic style, I think is really interesting, but it hinges completely on somebody having invented an artistic style. Yeah. And so the question is, are we going to get to a point where uh, a novel artistic style can be created by a computer in a way where someone wouldn't be able to tell the difference between that and an artistic, st- a completely novel artistic style created by but this is, I mean, this is not new, right? So uh, there's this phase of realism in art that's kind of ended by photography, yeah. right? I so, love that. I love it. You yeah. know, so actually then, you know, cubism and all these sort of things are emerging out of like, oh, damn, a, com- a computer, not a computer, but a, uh, a machine can do what people most appreciated in my art now. Okay, well, I better do something different. Yeah. I mean, that's creativity. That's I At the same time, I think it's important to say when we're talking about human creativity, the invention of the camera didn't end photorealism and only made it more interesting as like an artistic pursuit. It just changed the way that you approach those things now. And I think that's important and gets left out of the conversation around artificial intelligence a lot is that these things are, are yeah. tools that allow us to approach our creativity in a different way because something else has been made simpler. I think that's totally true. And I think that that's one thing in these very simplistic future discussions that seems to generally get missed that actually um well i keep saying uh, that artificial intelligence in this way is, is a nar- narcissistic thing as i've said it should be called anthropomorphic intelligence it's it's a narcissistic yeah. thing it's an exploration of ourselves um and uh, that's fantastic in the same way art and music and everything else is and actually it will affect us and uh, the really interesting thing about it is we're going to learn more about the human condition by seeing it from an outsider's perspective and more about what makes it special. I mean, people have said some pretty interesting things like, uh, what's the limit at which we start getting upset that the computer's taking away things right. that we do? Um, and uh, at the Future of AI meeting in New York in January, um, someone said, it was a, um, what's that name? It was a Chatham House rule, so I think I'm not allowed to say who said it, um, but then I'd like to credit them, um, said that actually it would be decision-making. When decision-making is taken out of our hands, like important decision-making of a CEO, yeah, which I thought was quite an interesting, quite a good point. That's a sort of interesting, like, um, if we're being emulated in our decisions. I, mean, I think that's quite a long way off. I think I disagree with this. The notion that in general, removal of decision making is going to be something we're uncomfortable with. Yeah. And the reason is because I think we actually like it in a lot of circumstances. I, I'm thinking here about sort of criminal justice and things like that in particular. 
where there's perceived to be arbitrary sort of uninspectable biases going on in humans. Um, whereas uh, once you automate the process, then maybe maybe you feel like it's objective. So here, so here are situations in which decision-making has been removed from humans and we're all very happy about it. Uh, essentially any sport which now has interesting... Uh, interesting electronic measurements of like, for example, in tennis, it's, it's possible to review a shot to see whether or not it's in or out or in uh, soccer and hockey and, and sports where you can, uh, you know, it's possible to review whether or not the ball uh, completely or puck completely across the plane to, for a goal. And, you know, I think there's a variety of situations like that where people were a little bit uncomfortable right at first with the idea mm. of replacing replacing human judgment, but that now that it's there, everyone is actually much happier because of the perceived objectivity. I think that the individual was referring to when the decision-making power is taken from you. I totally agree with you. Um, I think that they were maybe referring to a circumstance where you had some control over something and now you're alleviated of that control. So that's sort of loss of power. But maybe that you're right. That doesn't... It's so hard to project into the future and sort of see what goes wrong and I think that or see what we'll be uncomfortable with because there's so many things people say we're going to be comfortable uncomfortable with that we're apparently very comfortable with then there's a lot of this sort of, well what will people do you know um, because computers will do all the work and then I think and then they start saying well computers will do productive work and we'll just focus on entertainment and I think where's the step what is productive work you know what parts of my job are productive and which parts are entertaining for me and I think that this is a really interesting domain is that the more you think about it, you know, there's no definition for what these things are like in terms of like productivity is in terms of growth, in terms of GDP or is it in terms of something else? I mean, it's weird. Yeah. And I guess I just don't I just don't buy a lot of these arguments. I feel like, OK, it's true that I could by hand modulate the temperature in the room that I'm sitting in. But I do like thermostats. I like these little control systems that are little AIs that, that keep the temperature around some place that I care about. It's true that I could pull out a big paper map and I could decide exactly how to get from point A to point B. But I kind of like that path, I guess path the pathfinding solves that, that problem for me. At some point, if you lose all the agency is the word, you know, mm. then that's a weird position to be in. Like if everything's being simulated around you but i don't really feel that that's going to happen we've had that's what i was the point i was trying to make from before is actually you know you can't or what you're saying you can't have a computer sort of making those coffees in in the way that um uh the baristas do because actually the point is that they're human beings with their own stories behind them and that's sort of important and that the coffee's single origin not because the taste necessarily i'm sure some people can tell but because of uh, this sort of imagined story of it. Would you like this coffee with sugar, milk, and story? <laughs> <laughs> but it comes with it. They How put strong do you want your up. narrative <laughs> in this interaction? In one of the supermarkets in the UK, they pick, put up pictures of the farmers that produce... Of you know, course. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, that's the entirety of the Starbucks yeah. model. Yeah. yeah, it's, uh, you know, here's, here's Hal. He's the computer that... <laughs> If he's got eyes and a little mouth shape, then people will attach he, to him. He grew up on an old 386 <laughs> before he got upgraded. See, computer scientists would love that story. I know. There's the like rest a, of the population. Like <laughs> he started out in his ZX81. Wow. <laughs> Look um, how far he's come. Yeah, so these, this need for narrative, something that I, I think of as this, is what I call this locked-in intelligence we have. So as humans, we... Um, 
have a very low... I mean, look, we have to do a whole radio program here or radio podcast to try and describe what's going on. In, you know, if we were computers, we'd just go and uh, transmit the whole sort of all papers. It would be done. Like, it, you know, all deep learning knowledge could basically be transmitted in an instant. The reason it's sort of interesting and, and hopefully entertaining is because actually we have to do all this work to sort of what would be good for the listener. So that requires a sort of model of, of who's listening, um, what's in their minds already, what they would find informative, um, and try and take things that we're trying to communicate out. That process is across a very low bandwidth channel. I mean, uh, it's a, what, words, we can get maximum 60 bits per second, and that would be if we were sort of saying 1010 or something like that. Um, so that compares to gigabit transmission rates for computers. So the, the amount, I think that that really strikes at the human condition, the amount of modeling we have to do of each other second guessing. Like I can see Ryan wants to come in. So I sort of think, no, I'll just talk over him. Or I think, oh no, I should let him come in now. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I guess for me that, you know, this notion of kind of empathy, right? Like uh, yeah. that I have a theory of mind for you. I feel like that's exactly what massively amplifies the, the true bit rate, right? So yes. we could do this unbelievable kind of coding because we're communicating ver through very, very high level abstractions. Like just me, I use the word coding there, right? And yeah. for you, there's a tremendous amount of information that uh, is implied by that where you can say, ah, yes, that means that if I, if Neil has a probabilistic model for me, then uh, then he knows that I'm referring to uh, this idea of being able to compress information according to a prior distribution. And it's a very meta discussion yeah, not, now. But not, not programming. I mean, like if someone yeah. else was listening to yeah, us. Yeah, for example. So, yeah. you know, if my 13-year-old was listening to us and he heard you say coding, he would assume in that case, he knows that means programming, right? So he would know, that he would think, oh, what do you mean you're doing programming? But because you have a good model for what I understand, perhaps what the audience understand, you say coding, we, I know it means information theoretic coding, transmission across a channel, which is exactly what we're talking about. So the amount of compute, though, that we do to do that encoding, given our low bandwidth channel, is so astronomical. And computers just have never had a need to do that. They're going to have to have a need to do that to communicate with us at our level. And that's what I think anthropomorphic intelligence is referring to. Yeah. The, I mean, you know, I don't really, as I've said, back to coffee again, you know, the idea of an artificial general intelligence single algorithm, I don't buy it. You know, I think there's eight different ways to make a coffee and you're telling me there's one way to be generally intelligent i don't buy it but i do buy into the idea that we will want to probe the computers in a way that we feel comfortable with and that means that we will want them to emulate this ability to uh project onto us understand what we're thinking communicate at that low bit rate the apparent low bit rate but but because it's a coding with an understanding of what we understand mentally I mean, and that's why we're here, because we're speaking to people, you're getting new ideas, exchanging information. That's the beauty. Yeah, it's going to a place where you sort of have high bit rate in a particular in a particular area. Actually, this is an interesting thing, though, that you're sort of getting at, which is, you know, obviously, I think we all agree on this kind of ambiguity between sort of artificial general intelligence and this anthropomorphic intelligence that, mm. that I think essentially 99% of the time gets conflated when people talk about, about strong AI. But this kind of anthropomorphic strong AI really that's almost like the human concept of like emotional intelligence, right? Yeah. Which is sort of boils down to how effective are you at building a theory of mind for someone you're communicating with? You know, how much can you empathize and understand what it is that, you know, that they're trying to achieve and what's kind of going on in their heads. 
And, uh, and it, it, that really reveals just how far computers are away from, uh, from being able to achieve that kind of anthropomorphic intelligence. You know, this, uh, these chatbots, right, that people have been sort of building lately and that, like, for example, Microsoft somewhat disastrously put on, onto Twitter, uh, you know, these, uh, these things obviously aren't even attempting to build a theory of mind for what, you know, for what the, uh, what the, the person interacting with them, uh, you know, might want to be achieving, which is why people are able to trick them into saying, like, you know, racist things and stuff very easily is because they, they're just, like, completely, uh, completely ignorant of the idea that, this human might not be doing exactly what they're intending. They're a tool, they're, not another being, yeah, which is exactly. the thing that everybody forgets. Well, yeah. but the way and the way they get around that is they say something like, "Oh, it's targeted at millennials," which I think what they did for the Tay AI. So that's sort of that's their way of opting out of doing a theory of mind. Because if that were a genuine millennial that was now, if it had an idea, if it had a theory of mind and knew what its audience was, it probably wouldn't be writing racist stuff. Well, it might be, but you know, then it would get pilloried as it does. And you know, if it like knew, oh, I represent Microsoft. And I'm going to do all these things. Hi, I'm an anti-Semitic chatbot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Representing Microsoft. Um, so that's, that's clearly like not going to be something. I mean, that's what we expect. That's emotional intelligence. That's what we would expect, you know, maybe not uh, kids to be able to do. But any, any millennial that it was trying to emulate would, would be able to do it. And, you know, unless they had some problems of their own, which is the sort of thing we, we try and deal with in society. I, th- I think this issue of, 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 of getting that, that is so hard to imagine uh, to, or to get. I mean, the only way route we can see to it at the moment is acquiring so much data about people that we can kind of emulate how they behave. But that does not mean that when I meet a new person, so we can maybe emulate people in general, that, but people want to be treated personally. I mean, the, the people really don't like it when you make generalizations about it. They, they want you to sort of respond to who they are. So you have to acquire that information very quickly. So you're either going to be in this spooky situation where you've given the computer so much data uh, that it understands you anyway, or you, you're going to need algorithms that are capable of doing that very rapidly. Um, and we're, I, we're a long way away from that, right? I agree. Yeah. I mean, it, I think there's a, this kind of basic question about whether or not um, it's possible to sort of have enough data to observational data to do this, I think. Uh, that is to say that a lot of the, you know, as the three of us sit here, a lot of this kind of emotional intelligence and empathy boils down to the fact that we know we have all had very, very similar experiences across many different, uh, across many different parts of our lives, right? And so various details of some experience of, I don't know, you, you know, you guys going to university or uh, a first date or like a, a variety of sort of like, like human experiences, I can interpolate very well, like what those might've been for you and what, uh, and what might've happened and how you felt and all of this kind of, all of this kind of things, because I, I have experienced this myself, but it's not obvious that, um, that there's a kind of an amount of data that would, that would easily replicate that. And you were making me think, as you were saying that, as humans, our tendency to reject experiences that aren't familiar to us. So I was just thinking about different cultures. When, when we become very used to a way of living in our own culture, our tendency to observe someone else's culture and decide that that's wrong, to not actually look at whether it, it's in interesting or different or it's just because of the different circumstances. Um, so this is a sort of a characteristic of humans that, Presumably, we don't want to emulate, but um, it's uh, but it is a characteristic of humans. So it's nice that we do all this empathy, but we also all do this sort of this group think where we uh, start dismissing 
uh, anything any other culture says if it's alien to us. Well, and this also, I think, is responsible for a lot of the kind of societal traps that we fall into uh, in which you know you see someone else who you sort of assume has a very similar experience, but maybe struggled against some uh, you know cha- structural challenges that our society put up. Like I think, I think a lot of racism kind of comes down to this, where people actually have very different experiences based on their skin color and based on the sort of uh, you know the, the the environments in which they they were raised, and yet they assume that the other one has all of the, you know basically had the same set of experiences when the reality is very different. Well, that's an area where I think uh, machine learning can do a lot to help. I mean, you've had Hannah Wallach on the show. Um, and I think that the sort of work uh, that she's doing where you're trying to ensure fairness and transparency, you know, there's, there's one of these utopian dystopian things going on again. Um, so I, I read uh, Laplace's philosophical essay on probabilities. He's working out uncertainty and odds and gambling. And he it's this amazing sort of vision of the future about like how... Now we understand rational behavior. The whole world's going to be rational. Of course, what actually happens is corporations understand rational behavior and they, they exploit our lack of rationality. So that's like a big worry, isn't it? That like as we get a deeper understanding of these social complexities we're just talking about, that um, not even consciously, subconsciously, systems we design, automated systems, will just exploit our cognitive biases because yeah. they can make money that way. And, and, and the more you exploit, the more money you can make. So um, I think there is a need for a lot of reflection on that. Um, I worry a lot about uh, uh, when we're giving up our personal data that we're losing agency because um, we give away something of ourselves to the computer. And if it, if it doesn't have this empathy, if it doesn't have this theory of mind about how it's dealing with that data, it's, it just is trying to turn it into money. Uh, that's the, that's the, what all the drives are for, you know, and that, that works quite well but it's it's a little bit of a dehumanization this odd thing that in particular where we're saying if it could acquire that much data that maybe it can predict my behavior better than i can predict my behavior into the future um so i think there's a lot of interesting issues about uh, how we uh, retain control of our identity and our agency uh in this domain um and i think that that's another thing about as a community we run headlong down to these methods in particular methods that require us to pull all our data together in one place to make money out of them we're actually causing problems you know it it used to be that yeah well that's how databases work they don't work like that anymore you can distribute data however you like Um, the people who are causing the largest problems in terms of the need to assimilate data together in order to make money out of it is now the machine learning community and what are we doing about it pretty much nothing um, and, and that's another reason for these small-scale meetings where you sort of uh, have these sort of discussions and think about the future and what things we need to do to solve the problems that occur before they occur. So I want to ask you um, a fairly pointed question after our... Um, so this has been a fairly small conference, mm. and the gender ratio is pretty amazing. You have uh, an extraordinary amount of women here, given the actual ratio in the field. Was that intentional? Uh, interesting. Um, yeah. Is it, is it that great? It's, it's uh, better than other meetings have been. It's better than some meetings I've been to. I was actually reflecting, oh, but how many uh, female presenters have there been? Um, not so many so far in the workshops I've been attending. Um, yeah. I think in total there are two. Yeah. 
Um, you know, okay, so let me backtrack a little bit. Um, I do some consulting for uh, people who do pipe connections, and I went to the um, a big uh, sort of, it's called the Pipeline Industries Group Pig, or something like that. <laughs> Uh, big their annual dinner in London, and uh, did they have pork? Uh, we didn't have pork. I can't I remember. It was all black tie do. It was totally all men, and men of a particular age, like sort of a uh, little bit older than me, not much, a little bit older than me. Um, and uh, I was looking around, thinking, "Wow, they've got a gender problem that's way worse than ours," and no one cares because no one thinks that's a glamorous job. I mean, mm. it's actually quite an interesting job, but onshore and offshore pipelines. So, th- so that that was an odd thought. That was like, oh yeah, but, it, it, but that's not to sort of diminish the problems in machine learning, which are um, very big. That's um, a, by the way, that's an amazing observation. I had literally never thought of, which is that there's a certain kind of egotism associated with um, with worrying about. Diversity, right? Because you are supposing that your situation is so good that it is desirable to people, and that there are systemic systemic issues keeping them out, despite their wanting to be there, and not that they are like like nobody complains about diversity issues. And well, I don't know. Uh, you could imagine a variety of jobs in which we, we in, in which nobody talks about diversity precisely because yeah, I used to work on oil like, rigs. People didn't like you know. I cares. actually work with uh, female engineers, but there wasn't a big issue about. I mean, in fact, most oil rigs had sort of male only. I'm sure that's changed now. But, you know. It's really interesting. But it's an interesting because it also reflects the transition, right? So there was this time at which no one cared because we weren't actually in. I mean, people did care. People noticed. I remember going to meetings and go, oh my God, there's no women here. There's 30 men and there's no women. Um, but it wasn't a sort of something that outsiders were pointing out. Now, I, I think it's actually really important that we're getting that sort of outside feedback because it is important. Now we've just been talking yeah. about social issues. Now we're just sort of saying, oh, whoa, we're people that are driving this collation of data and we're projecting male-only points of view. Let's not just talk about women. How many um, African-Americans or Afro-Caribbeans are uh, in the meeting? So mm. I don't know, very few. Um, now let's go beyond that and let's talk about... Um, you know, even if there are African-Americans or Afro-Caribbeans from the UK or whatever, then they're, they're typically going to be first world point of views. How many, how many developing world perspectives are we getting on these meetings? Where can data do the most? Data can do the most actually in the developing world. So, you know, it's great that we can get Ubers and everything else and we can book fancy dinners and everything. People are dying because of poor quality data because of inability to distribute um, vaccines to the right place. Um, one of our speakers at um, the Machine Learning Society workshop for tomorrow can't make it because he works for UN Global Pulse and there's an impending drought in Ethiopia and he has to stay on station to help you know, analyze data that's coming in to distribute uh, aid in the right way. Um, that expertise, it's I find it offensive that that is all being developed in uh, the Western world and projected onto them. You know, here's your solutions for the day. You know, you, here's Uber and you can have these other things. You know, I mean, actually, we need people in... Um, so, John Quinn, who I was talking about, is based in Kampala. Um, people in Nairobi to be learning their own solutions. They need this expertise that we have here. So, it is absolutely true that there's, there's certainly a problem with uh, gender and there's a problem with all sorts of diversity. It's not unique to machine learning. Um, it's worse in machine learning than, say, statistics. Statistics is better. Um, it is better, yeah. Um, 
and it's something we need to be conscious of. So do you think there's call for something like machine learning researchers without borders or is that carpet bagging? Like how, how do we actually address these issues? I think it's really interesting because there's this tendency. To, so one response is to sort of say, oh, now, um, you know, uh, we'll have some sort of charity or something. But, but those responses often turn into um, fairly condescending organizations. Kind of colonialism of yeah. a particular Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a sort of massive uh, Show up. colonialism paternal, paternal, in terms of paternal. particularly religious organizations, yeah. you know, who sort of uh, project themselves onto uh, uh, different cultures in an effort to... Um, so... I, I think it's really, I think education, I think, look, talking machines, you know, there's people, uh, certainly we, I've heard, you've had people uh, coming in from India who sort of uh, sent questions in. Um, there should be people in Africa as well now. There's good, uh, there's, there's, there's good uh, mobile networks. There's quite a good internet availability in, in certain countries, uh, certainly Kenya and Uganda. Um, so, yeah, um, but it, what perhaps would be better would be to have um, more focus on some of those challenges. I mean, machine learning software uh, workshop yesterday was fantastic. You know, and you, you, we had people there from Twitter. We had, we had Ryan speak, which, was, of course, was amazing. Um, we had uh, uh, people from Facebook um, speak, you know, about the challenges of doing machine learning at large scale within uh, companies. And, and, of course, it's very attractive. You can earn you know, very good good salaries working for these companies problems are interesting they're technically challenging and they have an effect on people's lives um yeah but at the same time there's actually a whole cool set of challenges that there's not much money behind i mean you have things like the gates foundation funding projects in these areas but uh yeah that's a major question how do you how, how do you get interest in in those sort of areas and do it in the right way i mean facebook have had a lot of trouble in india with trying to roll out their internet there um, because the suspicion mm -hmm. of um, what is the company trying to do. So you, you need a sort of ground up movement, but isn't that what the internet was supposed to be all about? Isn't that what we're really supposed to achieve? If I tweet about this, then people can read that across the world, you know, uh, so on and so forth. So more education material um, and perhaps a bit more focus on some of those applications. Did you ever uh, get involved with AIMS, this, this, uh, program no. that david and uh, neil turok and, and no but it's have. ongoing and it's a very uh, well-respected institute in fact uh, this is the african institute for mathematical sciences yeah and yeah. there's i think uh, south africa i haven't really yeah. been but i've got contact with a few people in south africa there's a lot of data science interest in south africa and i think that that's going to drive this too there's a big hub in kenya so um, there's something called the iHub there, and there's IBM Research Nairobi, and a few different groups in Nairobi. Nairobi's like driving the East African IT revolution, and then South Africa is a big driver of it um, uh, for Southern Africa, and is, is seen as a big um, sort of, I think, leader for Africa overall. Um, but the beauty, so that's great, but then part of me thinks as well, you know, you can develop apps in Kampala. You can develop apps wherever you want. And uh, that's so cool. And this information infrastructure, you know, that you can distribute. If you can have an idea that actually will help people. Okay, not everyone has smartphones yet, but there's quite a lot of smartphones around. But if you can write something quickly, you can distribute it. And it's, it's in location right then and there. Um, and it's not, an, hopefully it's not an imposed solution. People are developing it and, and pushing it up. It's not only about data, that's about sort of, IT in general, but um, 
but, but I think there's particular opportunity, I guess coming back to why I think it's interesting. If you wanted a health informatics system in uh, Kampala or in Uganda, you can do it on the mobile phone. You know, the fact that they have no health informatics system now means that you don't really have to deal with, oh, but we've got these centralized databases of all the patients. You just say, okay, well, we'll distribute your data in your control on your phone. Um, and when you see a doctor, you do a data exchange. They update your record. And when you leave, they kind of probably even lose your record. They don't sort of, you know, it, it's something that is back in your control. And, and this goes back to those questions of agency. There's the potential to push out models that I think are a lot healthier in terms of uh, social infrastructure, infrastructure lead for the individual yeah. um, and make an enormous difference. Very, very hard to do that in the UK where there's a large sort of uh, centralized database of patients or, or in the US when the insurers, you know, future of AI meeting, um, I can't remember his first name, but Kelly from IBM said uh, uh, that IBM own 100 million health records. And I just think that's horrific. The word ownership there. Yeah. Is like really troubling. And how did they get them? Because they bought companies that owned them. Um, I, I'm sure quite a lot of those people are dead because whenever you look at health records, you know, so that, that maybe let's, let's say that's uh, optimistically, let's say that's 30 million living people whose health records they own. I just think, well, where's your rights on that? Really, it's really, really complicated. Like can there. you sell your medical records? That doesn't seem like ownership there is just an interesting. It's an interesting word, even relative yeah. to like licensing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, and I think we don't have those rights sorted out. We don't have the legal frameworks. In fact, we've got the Machine Learning Society workshop. We've got Jonathan Price from Dirty Street Chambers in the UK, who's going to talk a little bit about that tomorrow. Um, what's going on in Europe in terms of privacy legislation. So there's two ways. You've got privacy legislation, and then you could have sort of property rights over your data. All very involved and complex. And, um, and, and I think, you know, that, that certainly if you talk to colleagues at uh, the big internet companies, they actually would like better guidelines on how to do this because they don't want to upset people. Um, and uh, yeah, those are sort of major challenges. But one of the things really interesting things in the developing world is there's an opportunity to sort of do things in a, in a, a principled way from the, from the ground up. Um, you have to be a bit careful. You, you shouldn't go in there and you shouldn't be, we shouldn't evangelize just as I criticized others for doing earlier on, but it seemed natural to me that you can install solutions that are user-centric in terms of the data modeling. Um, and when I say data, data modeling there, I meant the model of how data is distributed, not the machine learning data yeah. modeling. Um, and allow individuals to maintain agency. Um, I think this can be a major issue in the future, uh, a really major issue. These are also things that I feel like uh, can be solved, if not through sort of individuals possessing their own data, through interesting cryptographic solutions. So there's this kind of emerging area of, uh, I guess it's homomorphic encryption. Yeah. Is that, is, I think, is that the right thing? Um, so it's this idea, broadly speaking, that's, that's relatively sort of early days, but where you can um, perform computations and processing on data without being able to see it. So imagine that uh, I would like to run a logistic regression on some data or do some kind of machine learning, um, but I w we would like to create a situation in which that could be done without being able to actually look at it. And so you would get a, an encrypted result out. Uh, so you know, you and I could implement an algorithm, we could run it on some data, we could never be able to see what the data is, but whoever could unencrypt un it could take advantage of the fact that we implemented this algorithm. Uh, and this is, I think, a really powerful idea for some of these things where people are empowered to encrypt their data and do different things to it. And other people like the machine learning community could uh, give them all kinds of tools 
and um, and those people and then people could apply those tools and feel comfortable that they that didn't didn't mean that using the tool meant giving up uh, information. Yeah, I think that these ideas are vital. Um, one of the analogies I give to this, well, I, I think of it. Uh, I mean, it is known as a is a data liquidity problem, right? So without these tools in place, it's not allowing the free passage of data between the places where it's stored at the moment. You, we don't have the mechanisms for that. And so the, the analogy I think of, so like in the early industrial revolution in the UK, the person who invented the first steam engine, it was quite inefficient, was wanting to pump out tin mines. But the tin mines are in Cornwall and the coal's all in the north. So the engine was never very successful for the application that he wanted it because you couldn't get the coal down uh, to Cornwall. You had to invent more efficient engines so that they use less coal, coal here being the data, um, and tin being the application, like let's solve medical or developing world, but all the data was somewhere else, locked into Facebook, Google, and Amazon. And of course, what happened later, of course, they had railways, canals, you know, they, they didn't have packed horse travel. They had the ability to push that stuff around. We don't have that ability at the moment. We've got, um, so the coal mines did build these engines because they could just shove the coal in. Yeah, and that's what we've got right now. Who's building the big engines, the deep learning engines? Google, Facebook, um, you know, they're the ones with the data. They're the ones that are exploiting the, the advances. Um, so we need to, A, improve the efficiency of those engines, and that's like something that occupies me a lot. But then the other, the, the thing that would wash that away actually is, is the data infrastructure and this homomorphic encryption is one way forward i mean we're, we're myself um we're more looking at differential privacy as a yeah. model and yeah. i'm not saying it's the right way it's an interesting way of, of doing but it um, trying to get after the same kind of idea though. Yeah, yeah trying to go at the same sort of thing ways that um protect uh, the individual um but allow their data to be shared and processed in ways that are beneficial to them um, maybe but, can you just explain what differential privacy is um so differential privacy is is a way of um protecting your record, well, protecting the record in the database by only providing summary measures, first of all. But then beyond that, so what we're sort of saying is, Ryan, you know, instead of saying, uh, um, Ryan, where were you precisely at this time? It's like, what was your average position across these three days? Um, or maybe your average, how much you were moving around. Um, some sort of summary measure like that. But then also corrupting it with some noise. Because otherwise I can say, oh, where were you from 11 o'clock till 11.59? And then I can ask them, where were you from 11 o'clock till 12 o'clock? And I can find out where you were uh, between 11.59 and 12. So you corrupt each of these things with certain amounts of noise. And then you can show this provides some protection. Um, and it's so, an in, sorry, so it's a way to like run queries on a database that are sort of guaranteed not to reveal too much information. Too much. So we couldn't. So I couldn't sort of you know specify that you were at the venereal disease clinic at twelve o'clock too precisely because there would be some um, plausible deniability. So there's this actually one of my postdocs uses, and I'm sure he he got it from an article somewhere. This sort of issue of like uh, if I want to ask you two questions, but I'm in some position of power where you do coin tosses to decide the first coin toss says whether you answer truthfully or dishonestly. So, um, so I sort of say, you know, um, I don't know, something, uh, have, you ever, uh, have you ever listened to, uh, you know, ACDC or something? And you, you, that might be an embarrassing thing. I don't know why it would be. But you sort of, the first thing you do is you toss a coin. And if it comes up heads, then you answer honestly. But if you come up tails, then you toss a co second coin. In fact, in both cases, you toss a second coin. Otherwise, I realize what you're doing. You, so you, you toss a second coin and the second coin, if it's heads, you say yes, tails, you say no. So you now have plausible deniability. So you have an, an ability to say, well, um, 
uh, I said yes, but of course, you know, it could have been because I was told to answer randomly. Um, and that gives you some protection. Of course, there's some problem now is like if you're my entire research group and it's really important to me, like the example uh, Mike Smith, my postdoc uses, you know, do you think Gaussian processes are great? And then they all have to sort of say yes in theory, but then some of them say no. Of course, if it's the whole group and then I can see the proportionally across the whole group that I'm seeing the statistics that the no's are only 25%, so that those are coming out at random then, then that's another problem. So you don't have group privacy, but you have individual uh, privacy. So there's some really interesting issues. What I really like about that area, I'm not sure if it's the most practical or the least practical framework. I mean, Cynthia Dwork is someone who's been putting, pushing this a lot. There's some really good scientists coming at it from the um, uh, protection side. So it's a very rigorously researched area. Whether it's what people will pick up in the end, I don't know, but it's certainly what we'd like to do in the group or we're trying to do is use that as a way of starting to propose some models of doing a learning that are distributed. It could, of course, be homeomorphic encryption. could be another way of going. But, you know, we have limited uh, power, limited, I was going to say manpower, but the people have people power. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, manpower in the sense of hours of working, um, limited people power to, um, to research any given area. And uh, that means we're, we'll, we'll, we'll run with differential privacy for a bit and try and combine that with algorithms that can be distributed and uh, give you some sort of more control over your data. Um, but I worry terribly that there's very little conversation about that. You know, how much, you know, most of the conversation is all about, hey, if I get your data in a really big pile, this is what I can do. Well, so what's going to be the result? Then it's stockpiling your data. It's in everyone's interest. IBM, 100 million patient records. You know, and it's not going to be a hundred million; it's going to be a billion. Um, that that's yeah, it's very worrying, particularly because we don't really have the sort of oversight. I mean, not specifically IBM. It's worrying for anyone to have that. I'm not. Um, no, it, it, we don't even have the oversight to know that they are handling those records efficiently. That's what I worry. I mean, for example, IBM have this weird policy of IBM Watson is doing everything like the the Jeopardy game playing computer solves all data science problems. Well, I don't believe it. So I believe they're actually doing real data science underneath that somewhere. And I mean, and if they're not, then I'm really worried. So then I would like to know what is their real data science they're doing on these 100 million records? Who are these people that are doing it? Because I would like to know that they're doing it in the best possible way because there's a social responsibility here. The marketing makes it intentionally opaque. The marketing is appalling on that front. I mean, it really is extremely damaging. Um, you know, to just sort of say, and we're going to take this stuff and we're going to put it through Watson. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, maybe Watson has a role in medical informatics in terms of helping people understand disease. And that's great if that's the case. But the marketing is, is really damaging here. Um, and I think that... Uh, Isn't there a machine learning reduction where basically any learning problem reduces to jeopardy? <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> I was trying to read up actually on how they did the jeopardy because the jeopardy thing is pretty cool. I mean, this is the annoying thing about this. You end up railing against... Uh, what, solve jeopardy in polynomial well, how they, they solved it like by copying Wikipedia into like the hard drive and then searching Wikipedia and then they had like a sort of ranking algorithm for which answer might be plausibly correct and also for something putting it into... Um, but then they said that Toronto was in the US or something, which, uh, you know, for English people, we're not worried about this. <laughs> apparently that upset 
<laughs> that upset some portion of Canadians. Canadians, yeah. Um, yeah. And of course they said that because it's not actually that brilliant. It's not gonna it's not a general solution system of any shape or form. I mean, and of course the way that let's hope that the way that they're doing medical diagnostics is very, very different. And then they're using sort of state of the art techniques. But we've got a loss of oversight there. And that's not unique to IBM. That's that applies to any company that has access to this kind of data. There's no guarantee that the people who are best equipped to do the sort of analysis that needs to be done are those that are doing the analysis. And that's because of this data liquidity problem that we can't actually shift the data out because there's enormous issues of personal privacy and protection. And I really am quite concerned that we're not moving forward to address those issues quickly. And of course, there's very sensible reasons why, because we're driven by where the money is, you know, and it's all about ad click or recommender or these sort of things, things that actually make billions and billions of dollars. Uh, so how, how do we get out of that? I mean, it's, it's, it's like the developing world issue. There's all these things which we could do amazing things with data where we're basically not because there are challenges that are not so much technical challenge. Well, this becomes a technical challenge, actually. But um, they're social technical They're not challenges. just technical challenges. They're not just technical. There's this interface now, and that's a really exciting thing. There's this interfacing with the social sciences, which will make the social sciences more quantitative, but there's lots of feedback in from the social sciences into computer science. And, um, yeah, and the frustrating thing is the, it's like Internet of Things. We could see the Internet of Things was possible in 2000. I mean, it was, it was really frustrating the hell out of me. I couldn't get a Wi-Fi-enabled thermostat. I mean, well, how did that take an entire company that sold for a billion? It was sort of obvious, right? I want to be able to control my thermostat for my computer. All the tech was there uh, 16 years ago. So you sort of um, worry, wow, that, that it's sort of conceivable that you can solve a lot of these challenges now. But the boundaries, what were the boundaries to getting wireless-enabled thermostats? They took ages to come through. They're more like companies waking up to the technology. I mean, I, I don't know when Nest launched, but it's sort of impressive. That, and it's nicely designed, the Nest stuff. But This idea has to be seeded enough before someone will actually yeah. take be, a step on it. Yeah, exactly the fertilization it has to be in the sun and everything mm -hmm. else. And now everyone's going mad about Internet of Things like someone right. just invented it. Right. Um, <laughs> And then he's sort of like, well, you know, I, I, it's, but it's, it's sort of 15 years after the tech was in place. So do we now have to wait 15 years before we start addressing these problems? Uh, probably, yeah, I don't know. It's a bit yeah, we have to well, talk about I, them for 15 years before yeah. they become fertile enough to take action on. I, I hope not because I feel like in the, in the sort of data privacy world, Internet of Things accelerates the bad parts of that pretty pretty fantastically. Well, yeah, I tried, I wrote, I wrote a quick blog post about this saying it's not an Internet of Things, it's an Internet of People. You know, you name the occasion where one of these things isn't measuring a person. Or isn't internet of Toasters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what the IT stands for. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and, and that's, it, it's driving this, it's, dri it's exactly right, it, it's accelerating this tendency to collate the data. Um, at the end of the day, it's not about the sensors, it's about who controls the data that comes from those sensors, um, and that's what people are interested in. Neil Lawrence of the University of Sheffield. That's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode. Support for this episode of Talking Machines comes from the Open Data Science Conference. ODSC East returns to Boston May 20th through the 22nd, covering topics from data science to artificial intelligence. Use code TM at checkout for reduced price tickets. ODSC.com slash Boston for more information and registration.
Talking Machines theme song was composed by John Parati. Our logo was created by Alex Wilchko and arranged by Mike Rohr. Got a question? Email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS.